And now, Father, we come once again to this blessed book. And not just Proverbs, but all of your scriptures. And we praise you for giving them to us. This is your word, your only word. And it is every word that we need for life and godliness. And so we praise you for it. We praise you especially for the book of Proverbs and for what we have been learning about wisdom and what we've been learning about you, most importantly. And oh, Father, I pray that you would teach us today. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would today give us eyes to see and ears to hear, mainly that we would see Christ and God in all his glory. And secondly, we would see our own hearts and rejoice in the changes that you have wrought in us by your grace and to recommit to trusting you more and addressing the issues of our heart that still must be repented of so that we can have greater communion with you and one another. And we praise you for it all in Jesus' name. Amen. The fear of the Lord is basically made up of two things. The fear of the Lord is to love God by trusting his promises of blessing and trusting in his threats of discipline. Now let me say that again. The fear of the Lord is made up of primarily two things. And this is review. We talked about this last week. This is Old Testament, so we need to get this concept. The fear of the Lord is made up essentially of two things. It is made up of, of this primarily to love God, loving God by trusting in his promises of blessing and trusting in his, pro, his threats of discipline. Now, we're going to attempt to say that together because it will help you and it will help me. The fear of the Lord is, say it with me, to love God by trusting his promises of blessing and trusting his threats of discipline. They are, it is both. It is both. It is the fear of the Lord. And as I explained to you last week, and we won't take time to expound upon again this week, the fear of the Lord is a concept in the Old Testament that parallels the New Testament concept of being a child of God or being born again or adopted into the family of God. It is not exactly the same, but it is in an Old Testament sense it is synonymous, the fear of the Lord. For three weeks now, we've been studying the book of Proverbs, kind of taking a break from the book of John. We'll come back to that as soon as uh, we've dealt with this sufficiently. We've been studying it for about three weeks, and you may have picked up on the fact that we have yet to expound on even one practical life issue that Solomon addresses. And he dresses, addresses a myriad of practical life issues. Have you observed that? Have you noticed that? If you have, then that would be an accurate observation. I have not yet taken us to any of the practical wisdom issues that Solomon has addressed. And I'm doing that on purpose because I think, first of all, that a solid foundation needs to be laid without which the practical proverbial teaching of the book of Proverbs will end up being nothing but moralism. 
And we don't need moralism. We don't need behaviorism. We need the gospel, which means we need God. More importantly, however, I'm doing it this way. I'm laying this foundation first because I, I want to demonstrate for you how one should approach the Bible no matter what portion of Scripture he or she may be studying. The question is, how do we approach the bottle? By, not the bottle. How do we... How do, really, I don't do that. How do we, uh, how do we approach the Bible... How do we approach the Bible in a manner that is most pleasing to the Lord? And here's what I want to suggest. I've often said this, that when we come to the text of Scripture, the first question we must ask is not, how does this text apply to me? Don't ask that first. We'll get there. Don't ask it first. The first question that we should ask of any text of Scripture that we're studying is this. What does this passage teach me about God. What does it teach me about God? I've got to know that first. I've got to know who God is. I've got to know his character. I've got to know his goodness, his mercy, his justice, and all of his other infinitely perfect attributes. Now, we refer to the Bible as revelation for a reason. We refer to the Bible as revelation because it reveals something to us. And the most important thing I submit to you that it reveals or discovers to us is the person and character of God. Who is God? What is he like? How does he relate to the universe and to mankind? What involvement does he have in the lives of the righteous and the wicked, the wise man and the fool? These are all important questions, and they really need to be answered before we look into the practical skills for living that Proverbs offers us. Solomon knew this. Solomon knew this priority, I think. And that's why he repeatedly says throughout the book things like this. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. In other words... Knowing God comes first. Now say that with me. Knowing God comes first. Comes first. It's the foundation upon which everything else is built in Scripture. Knowing God is the beginning of wisdom, and it is the prerequisite for wisdom. So if you want true wisdom for life, you must know the God who is the author and sustainer of life. And so this morning, before we partake of the Lord's table, I just want to briefly talk with you about the God of Proverbs. Who is the God of Proverbs? What does Solomon teach us about God in this amazing, amazing book? Well, there's much to learn about God in Proverbs. And uh, Solomon, Solomon, however, tends to condense what we need to know about God into four basic things, four titles or four names, four specific names of God. And here's how he identifies God throughout the 31 chapters of the book of Proverbs. They are, number one, the Lord. Number two, the Holy One. Number three, God. And number four, Redeemer. 
Now, I want to spend some time on each one of these, uh, but because we're sharing the Lord's, tupper, Lord's Supper together today, if I can make it through this sermon without any more verbal faux pas, um, we'll, we'll just cover one, and then next week we'll come back and, and try to look at the other three, if that's possible. And so let's just look at this first one. This is so critical. This is so foundational. So if you're taking notes, you're only going to have one point here. And it is the first name, the Lord. The Lord. Now turn in your Bible to Proverbs chapter 1. And I've read this verses 1 through 7 several times to us already. This is, and again, we're, we're still laying a foundation here. Verse 7 is what I want you to see. The fear of the Lord. Now I want you to look at the word Lord printed in your Bible. Look at that word. Um, this is a really, really, really significant word. And one of the difficulties that we have in the English language is um, we just don't have enough distinct words to use for speaking about God. When Solomon speaks of God, the most frequent term he uses is Lord. Now, I realize that Lord is a term that we use when we speak about God in a generic way or when we pray about God, but frankly, the term often tends to be little more than a generic word for deity or for the being who created us all, whoever that is, or even if we want to get to the fringes of Christianity, the man upstairs. He's God. That's just who he is. We don't know much about him. He's just God. But that's not Solomon's approach. Solomon is very careful, and if you could read this in the Hebrew, you could see it. He doesn't say just God. He doesn't say just Lord. Those are generic terms for us. He uses very specific language in, in, his, in the original in Hebrew. But English, English presents us with some difficulties because it's, our, our language, at least relative to this word, is not as varied. We don't have as many words. And so what happened is that uh, the way Bible translators and publishers have attempted to resolve the problem is by printing the word Lord in a couple of different ways. And I'm only going to tell you about one because otherwise I won't make it through this. Um, in this case, I want you to notice, if you're looking at the word Lord, that your translation probably prints the word Lord in capital letters. Do you see that? The fear of the Lord. Now, if your Bible is like mine, the word Lord is in capital letters, and the O-R-D of Lord may be a small, kind of a smaller font size, but they tend to all be capital letters. That's not always the case with the word Lord in your printed text. Why? Because the publisher knows what we don't know, that behind this word could be a couple of different options, but there's one especially, that Solomon is honing in on. The publisher of your Bible wants you to know that Lord here represents a very specific name for God. The, Lord, the word Lord that contains lowercase letters is generally a reference to the name Adonai, which we're not going to talk about this morning. But the word for Lord that's spelled out with capital letters is always a reference to Yahweh. Or sometimes 
uh, we say Jehovah, although, and we don't have time for this, but Jehovah is actually a, a combination of a couple of different words. Jehovah is not actually a word in the Bible. You won't find that word. But Yahweh is the name. In the book of Proverbs, Yahweh is the dominant name that Solomon uses for God. In fact, 31 chapters, 87 times, 87 times, um, Solomon refers to God as Yahweh, Lord, capital letters. Now, why is that noteworthy? Well, it's noteworthy because Yahweh is the name that identifies the Lord, listen, as the eternal, covenant-keeping God. It reveals God's nature in the highest and fullest possible sense. This is God's covenant name so that when he presented himself to Israel, others, didn't, others knew him as God, but nobody had known him by this name. When he entered into covenant with Israel, he called himself, I am that I am. And the word for that is Yahweh. I am the eternal one. I am the, self, the self-existent one. I am absolutely faithful to all of my promises, and I am unchangeable. The theological term there is immutable. I never change. I am eternal. And I have promised to you that I will be with you and that I will provide everything that you need. I will never be apart from you And every crisis you face, you will face it with me. And that'll never change. It reveals God steadfastly and wondrously that he remembers his word and he executes his word in the fullest degree on behalf of his people all the time. Yahweh, I am the eternal, the immortal, covenant-keeping God. I always keep my promises. Name a promise that I have made. It will never, ever fail. Never. Beloved, do you know why life is better for people who live in the fear of the Lord? And not all Christians do. In the practical sense. Do you know why, most, why life is better for people who live in the fear of the Lord? I would suggest to you that it's because people who love God by trusting both in his promises of blessing and his threats of discipline, they tend to be the people who are the happiest people and the holiest people. And the reason for that, at least in part, is because of the unshakable security and stability they have because of who God is. If you want stability and security that will banish fear in your life, you must know God. You must have, as Proverbs says, the knowledge of God. You must know the Holy One. You must know Yahweh. Who is He? How has He revealed Himself? People who live in the fear of the Lord and in a growing knowledge of God have a security and a stability in their life 
that is relatively unshakable, come what may. People who live in the fear of the Lord are convinced that God is absolutely faithful and absolutely unchangeable. He never forgets a single promise. Whatever promise he has made to us, he he fulfills every one of them on our behalf. And that will never, ever, ever change. I love in the second service here we sang um, Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. This is blessing, blessing, blessing. We trust him, we follow him. How do we follow him? By trusting him for his blessing. He makes us lie down in green pastures. He leads us beside quiet waters. He restores our soul. Isn't that wonderful? He leads me in the paths of righteousness. That's the right path for his name's sake. And sometimes that path is the valley of the shadow of death. Even though he lead me through the valley of the shadow of death, I will not fear. Why? Because you're with me. What have I to fear if Yahweh is with me? He is always here. He is always keeping his promises. He's always protecting me. He's always leading me. I know as dark and as scary as this path may be, it's the right path. I can trust him. And even though he leads me down that dark path, the valley of the shadow of death, I will not fear for you are with me. And how about this? Here's the other side of the, of the fear of the Lord. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. The staff, yes, meant to rescue you. The rod meant to take care of the enemy and from time to time, when necessary, to discipline his little sheep. And David says, I get great comfort in that. My shepherd's not going to just let me wander off into sin. That's what it is to fear the Lord. This is what it is to fear the Lord. And beloved, this is so important for us because we live in such a a fragile, fearful generation. Even among Christians, fear is a major problem in the church. There are so many things to be anxious about. We get anxious about finances. We get, uh, and, and when we get anxious about finances, it gives rise to coveting and greed and hoarding and stealing. We get fearful about failure on the job or wherever, which can lead to joylessness and irritability. We can have fear about relationships that can bro- provoke us to withdraw from people and become indifferent and uncaring about others. We can be anxious about how somebody might respond to things that we say or do or preach. And that can provoke the temptation to cover the truth or to lie or to not say things that should be said. Some people, even in the church, live in a perpetual state of fear, worry, and anxiety. And some, jokingly, will say, well, worry is my spiritual gift. No, it's not. It may be your habitual sin, but it's not your spiritual gift. You don't have to live there. Don't you realize that God has made provision for your soul? He's made provision for you. But if you're living there, if you're struggling with various fears and anxieties and worries, if you're that kind of person, you have probably 
you probably hear Jesus' command. I want you to turn to, to Matthew chapter 6, and we'll look at the command. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 6, and I know my time is short, so sermonette for Christianettes this morning, right? <laughs> Not really. Starting with verse 25. Here's Jesus. We know it's Jesus because the letters are red. Verse 25, for this reason I say to you, do not worry about your life. Okay, stop there. All right, believer, this is, I'm, I'm Jesus and I'm saying to you, you're not allowed to worry. Stop it. Do not worry. Do not be anxious about your life. Do not be anxious. Why does he have to say that? Because we have the propensity of being anxious, fearful. And Jesus is saying, no, you're not allowed to do that. I command you, stop. I command it. And you may be hearing that and think, that is an unrealistic, compassionless law. Stop being anxious. It's like saying, Stop thinking about pink elephants. Now what are you thinking about? Stop being afraid. Oh, now you got me thinking about it again. People, um, people can look at, at a command like this and say, that doesn't alleviate my anxiety one bit. Just telling me to stop doesn't alleviate it at all. It just makes me more fearful knowing that God hates the fear that I feel. Well, now I feel worse. And I'm unhelped. But here's the thing. Jesus is not simply laying down a new law. Rather, he is offering you a solution to your fear. Namely, God. God himself. And so he says, for this reason I say to you, for what reason? Watch. Do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink or your body what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? For look at the birds of the air. They do not sow nor reap or gather into barns, and yet your, here he is, your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more they. Are you, are you not worth much more than they? And then look at verse 30. If God so clothes the grass of the field, and which is alive today, and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you? You have little faith. He'll clothe you. He'll take care of you. You see, he's not just saying, don't be anxious. He's saying, trust God. This is what it is to live in the fear of the Lord. And so here's a thought for you. If I were to ask you, how do you banish fear in your life? How do you get rid of fear in your life? How do you get rid of sinful fear in your life? Knowing that Jesus, and 360 sometimes in the Bible it says, do not fear. Knowing that being afraid, sinfully afraid, is sinful. Does that make sense? It's sinful. How do, you, how do you handle it? And you might say to me, 
Well, John says, perfect love casts out fear. And I would say, you're right. Perfect love casts out fear. That's a great New Testament text to help you. So love God. I would say there's an even more robust answer to that question in the Old Testament. How do you, how do you cast out of your life sinful fear? You replace it with the fear of Yahweh, which consists of two things. Loving God in such a way that you believe his promise is a blessing and you believe his threats of discipline. So that in the end you come out holy and happy, righteous and joyful. What is the antidote to fear? Is it not faith, beloved? Faith in who? Faith in our heavenly Father who has promised to take care of us. So when Jesus commands us not to fear, he's really offering an antidote to worry, namely God, which is the same thing as Solomon is saying, fear the Lord, fear the Lord. It's the beginning of wisdom and live in the fear of the Lord. It is life for you. It is life. Listen, beloved, when fear begins to well up in your heart, the way Proverbs and all of Scripture would have us respond to it is by consciously replacing our fear of real or imagined, and they're usually imagined circumstances, replace the fear of those imagined or real circumstances with the fear of Yahweh. Instead of allowing ourselves to become overwhelmed with anxiety about the future, we resolve to exercise obedient faith. Not faith in faith, not faith in our own impressions or, or anything else, but faith in God's written and eternal promises. Faith in God. Faith in Jehovah, Yahweh, the eternal covenant-keeping God who is absolutely faithful, faithful, unchangeable, and sovereignly rules over everything. And we've often said around here, if there is one maverick molecule, molecule in the universe... God is not sovereign, but he is. He is sovereign over every circumstance. And you are not facing your present circumstance by accident. If you are a child of God, everything in your life is carefully measured. And there are going to be some days when you say what my children often say, uh, this is too much. Or, or they complain about a chore that we give them or an assignment, and they'll say, Really, you expect me to do that? This is too much for me. And to which I often reply, here is your father's, me, this is your father's responsibility in life. Part of it toward you is this, to show you that you can do far more than you think you can. You can be far more holy than you think you can. You can know more about God than you think you can know. You can accomplish more for his glory than you ever thought. You can conquer temptation in your life better than you ever imagined you ever could. Why? Because I am with you. I'm with you. This is what it means to live in the fear of the Lord. It means that we will not only love God for his blessings. Beloved, if you only love God for his blessings, I suspect you have a rather shallow faith. 
and I suspect that you're frequently unhappy. If you're not only loving God by trusting him for his blessings, but if you're also loving God by trusting his promise to discipline, the result will be a pursuit of holiness in your life that leads also to blessing in your life. And all of it bathed in, immersed in, and saturated by the glorious grace of God. It means that we not only love God for his blessings and trust him in every circumstance, but that when we do that, the primary time that we do it is this, when I'm afraid. There's a great psalm, Psalm 56, says this, when I'm afraid, I'll put my trust in you, in God, whose word I praise. In God, I will put my trust, I will not be afraid. What can mortal man do to me? That's out of Psalms. But let me take you to Solomon's prescription for dealing with fear in your life that is directly associated with the knowledge of Yahweh in your life. Now, you may just want to write down these references, or you can try to keep up with me. But I'm starting in chapter 2 of Proverbs. So you can turn back to Proverbs. And let's start with chapter 2. Now, every place the word Lord is used, I'm going to replace it with the Hebrew word Yahweh. So you understand that we're talking about Lord as the covenant-keeping eternal God who never changes but always, always, always keeps his promises to you forever. Proverbs 2.6. For Yahweh gives wisdom. From his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. Are you perplexed? Confused? Need wisdom? Guess who you get that from? Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. I love this verse, this text. Trust in Yahweh, this eternal covenant-keeping God who never, ever changes and always keeps his promises to you forever. Trust in Yahweh with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. That's what the fools do in Proverbs. In all your ways, acknowledge. The Hebrew word there means to know. Act in the knowledge of him, and he will do this. He will make your path straight. Even if it's a path that leads through the valley of the shadow of death. Proverbs 3, 9 through 10. Honor Yahweh with your wealth. Are, are, you, are you feeling some anxiety about your finances? Honor Yahweh with your wealth and from the first of all your produce so your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. He'll take care of you. He'll take care of you. Get your mind off of how little you have and start putting, on, putting into your mind um, what you could do with the little you have for his glory. Proverbs um, 20, uh, I'm sorry, 3, verses 25 and 26. How about this one for our topic this morning? Do not be afraid of sudden fear, nor of the onslaught of the wicked when it comes, for Yahweh will be your confidence, and he will keep your foot from being caught. Listen, 
God is even sovereign over the evil people in this world who seek to do you harm. Proverbs 10, verse 3. Yahweh will not allow the righteous to hunger. Proverbs 10, 27. The fear of Yahweh prolongs life. Proverbs 14, 26. In the fear of Yahweh, there is strong confidence, and his children will have a refuge. When you're afraid, where do you run for refuge? Where do you run for refuge? We're in Proverbs 14. Look at the next verse, verse 27. The fear of Yahweh is the fountain of life, that one may avoid the snares of death. Proverbs 15, verse 16. I love this. Better is a little with the fear of Yahweh than great treasure and turmoil with it. It's better to have not much stuff. I'm okay. If, if I don't have much stuff and I've got God, I'm happier than, than 10,000 people who have more money than me, and they live in constant conflict and turmoil. Who wants that? And I could have communion with God. Proverbs 6, 4. Yahweh has made everything for its own purpose, even the wicked for the day of evil. Yep, even that wicked person you know, going around doing evil things to other people. God's not unaware, and he has a plan, and always has. You can trust him. Proverbs 16, 9. The mind of man plans his ways, but Yahweh directs his steps. You're standing at the fork of the road. You're wondering what you should do. You're perplexed. You're fearful. The Lord is sovereign. Make a decision. Look at this. Proverbs sixteen thirty three. The lot is cast in the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Let's d- develop that a little more. You're, you're coming to a decision. You're standing at the fork in the road, and you're going, you know, I'm not trusting in, in feelings or impressions here. I'm really bringing the word of God as best I can on this decision, and, and I've sought counsel on it, and I've got two options here. Maybe go to this college or that college or take this job or take that job or, or whatever, and I'm, after all of the counsel and all of the wisdom I can collect from the word of God, I'm still left with these two options, and it seems like I don't know which one the Lord will be more pleased with. And you know what, the, you know what Solomon's saying? Flip a coin. <laughs> Cast the lot. Why? Because every decision is from the Lord. And what he's saying is this. Make a decision and trust me. Trust me. And don't ever look back. Make the decision. Do your homework first, but make the decision and don't ever look back. Man casts the lot in his lap. But every decision is from the Lord. Oh, beloved, that brings such comfort because you're going to make decisions frequently and you're going to go, I don't know if that was the right decision. You don't need a word from the Lord. You have this word. You have this word. Trust me. I am the covenant-keeping God. I never change. And all of my promises to you are true forever. Proverbs 18.10 The name of Yahweh, this is maybe my favorite. The name of Yahweh 
And, and the name here represents all that God is in his character and person. The name of Yahweh is a strong tower. The righteous run to it and are safe. Run to God. And so, beloved, unlike sinful fear of circumstances, circumstances which can often offer really nothing better than anxiety, turmoil, and panic, the fear of the Lord promises knowledge, wisdom, life, security, confidence, satisfaction, and even rest. I haven't read all of the text to you. Some of them promise good sleep <laughs> to those who fear the Lord and find their rest and confidence in him. And the one who fears the Lord trusts that painful circumstances are given by God as discipline or as training for the one he loves and is absolutely devoted to. James knew this. That's why he said, Count on all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. God is up to something, and he is up to something good in your life. Solomon says of the person who fears the Lord, you will be blessed. Your life will be blessed. That doesn't mean you're going to be rich or wealthy or socially secure. You'll mean you know God. And you will have strong confidence so that you will not need to be afraid in the day of trouble. So who is the God of Proverbs? He is Yahweh, Jehovah, the covenant-keeping God who fulfills all of his promises and who executes his word on behalf of his people. In him we are absolutely secure. In this life, come what May. And so, beloved, living in a personal relationship with Yahweh, Jehovah God, is the reason that those who fear the Lord need fear nothing else. Let's pray. And Father, we come to this book week after week, and our main request is, oh God, would you reveal yourself to us so that we would know you better, more and so that our lives would be a reflection of your grace and your mercy, your gospel. And Lord, now as we participate in the Lord's table, I pray that none of us would participate in this in an unworthy manner, but that we would confess our sin and demonstrate to you, perhaps through prayer, our willingness to repent of it no matter what. And Lord, that you would be glorified in our holy lives that are full of joy, the joy of knowing you because of what you did on the cross. We give you praise for it and thanksgiving in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. Amen.